Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Dr. Michael Rapici, how are you today? Uh, Dr. Barry Falk, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are As you? As I mentioned before, I'm full of beans today, full of beans to talk about Jonathan Crary. And, and, uh, and who knew? And for, and for what it, for what it's worth, I had no idea what that even meant uh, <laughs> until just recently. Anyways, good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am very excited to talk about our book du jour, uh, book of the moment, uh, Jonathan Crary, uh, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. I will remark on the fact this is uh, just a very teeny bit of uh, backstory. I think at the very beginnings of our uh, rumblings in space and time, a uh, very beginning of our rumblings with the podcast. In fact, was it a podcast when we were doing? It was a re- it was, it was, this was this right? was re- it was a reading group. This was this was reading group. Oh, back in the day, back in those those Halicon days, Halicon days, or however you pronounce it. Anyway, uh, this was kind of our introduction. Michael and I, we were we we read Bernard Stiegler, and we read this particular book by Crary. We may have read this book by Crary first. Uh, Jonathan Crary, the book is Late Capitalism in the 24-7, colon, Late Capitalism in the Ends of Sleep, a 2011-2012 book, I believe. Uh, and we read this at the very beginning of our investigations into media studies, media theory. Um, and I'll be frank. And so, and but we thought that it was time to sort of return to it. Um, we also read Simone Weil to give you more insider baseball stuff. We also read Simone Weil at a kind of early time in the formation of this podcast, whatever it is. Um, and then, But we only recently did an episode that, that discussed Weil. Um, and so we thought we would, this might be time to revisit Crary. Now, I think I, I don't know if I made this clear to my co-host, but I was I was thinking that this was going to be a dull, tedious experience that I would have to liven up just for the sake of being polite to Michael and to our viewers and listeners. Um, because I was thinking that I liked Crary. I thought he had a great insight. Um, but I felt that some of the other things we've read have been more exciting, immediately engaging, perhaps more nuanced, a little bit less old man, old young person get off my lawn than Crary's book was. Uh, Crary, Crary's book does and did strike me as an old, old school humanist objection to digital culture. And so I was, I was concerned uh, and I'm, but I'm very happy that I held back my concerns and, and trudged on ahead because it was it was an absolutely exciting experience. Here, hence my beans, my being full of beans. I was really excited for reasons that I hope will become a little bit clearer to everyone. I was very excited to read, uh, reread Crary. The stodginess of his argument struck me as less less a sign of his stodginess or his old fashioned uh, humanism than kind of a principled attack on some noxious elements of digital culture. I thought it was uh, more eventful, more dramatic than I had remembered. And last point, because I think we'll elaborate, you know, no doubt we'll talk about this more. uh, And Michael and I just discussed this in our pre-meeting. 
we could not have asked, I think, for a better time to revisit uh, Crary uh, than after a fresh reading of Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. Because although, and I had forgotten this, uh, Guy Debord comes up in a very passing reference, I think it's not even a sentence, in the first chapter of Crary's book, uh, reading it this time with a kind of fresh take on Guy Debord in my mind, I was struck by the ways, and I like this part of Crary's project, I, I understood for the first time the ways in which Crary, I think, is very indebted to Debord and updating him in a curious fashion while still retaining the core of what Guy Debord, of Guy Debord's, well, to be frank, anti-capitalist critique. And that seemed more central to what Crary was doing. So I'm full of beans. I don't want to take up all the oxygen in, in the room. So I'm going to seed here. And Michael, I think you're going to tell us a little bit more about like What's the big takeaway of the book before we microanalyze? Or yeah, I, I I want to second what you're saying though. I I had a very different appreciation for uh, what Crary's doing here than I did <clears throat> the first time I read it, and I think part of that um, obviously has to do with the focus we've developed, especially coming off Tabor. But really, um, I think that this is an argument that does well to settle and sit for a little Maybe bit. So. Um, so the, just to sort of orient us and to, to, to frame this for, for listeners, there's really um, a few central arguments that, that, that he's playing with here uh, in terms of 24-7. Um, well, what 24-7 means. Right. So right. obviously, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the idea is that we are always on, that there's never any off anymore for us. And so the, the first argument, you know, he opens the book with his discussion about the uh, devaluation of sleep, right? How sleep is not a commodity that can be monetized. Um, and that essentially with the um, devaluation of sleep, time and our experience of time is radically altered. And I think there's a lot there to mind, which we'll get to. Um, and then the, the second part of the argument that follows his discussion of you know sleep and time is you know the, these two th this is happening because technology has allowed us or forced us into a 24/7 paradigm correct right. and as a result so so that's the first part of his argument and then the second part of his argument I feel really takes a look at the impact of existence in this 24 seven reality. And, um, you know, just to, just to sort of return to the inside baseball for a second, um, you know, we read Crary originally a while ago, um, in conjunction with Stiegler. And as I read the two together, you know, Stiegler's argument about sort of the, the banality and sameness that this always on, always connected world tends to create. I, I had sort of lumped Crary into that a bit. And there's, I think, a much greater sense of urgency in Crary's call to not, not so much look at this as, hey, everything is the same uh, and that we're just sort of awash in this banality. There's a much stronger and more pointed argument about the dangers and the costs yes, right. of this yeah. constant exposure to 
uh, and I, I don't think he would disagree with 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 Stiegler's you know argument about the sameness and there's the vacuousness of this. But he uses the word hom- homogeneity or homogeneity to right. describe the time, the new nature of time, uh, our well, and, new. Yeah, and and, and I, I don't I don't want to spill it, but I think the the interesting yeah. thing is that that there's no. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no pa- time. Time is reduced to this very moment, right? Like we don't Correct. have a past and we don't have a future in this. And that I think is the, right. we all, we all inhabit the same now, which is part of his problem. Um, and, and I think it's an interesting and, 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 and one well worth heeding. So, uh, you know, just to set the table, what, what we're really looking at here is, um, you know, the, the, the non-monetizable nature of sleep and therefore the reasons that capitalism wants to avoid that, the technological means through which that is accomplished, and then, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, uh, the cost of that uh, in, in terms of our you know human lived experiences. Costs. Yes, the right. human cost right. in terms of our lived experiences. So um, right. I think there's a, the, a few moments that we're gonna mine and. Um, uh, Bear, Bear I, I don't have them. If you want to share the screen and we can start talking. <laughs> yeah, about no, I, no, I'm ready to share the screen. But you know what? Uh, I, I, I share your impulse to not, you know, you mentioned this earlier. We don't want to give all, uh, actually chapter one, a lot of the chapter one to give you, to give listeners and viewers a, a sense of the flavor of the book. A lot of chapter one is uh, this kind of in detailed description of military activities and uh, the military's conduct of uh, uh, and the practice of sleep deprivation, right? In terms of like military, keeping keeping soldiers awake indefinitely, basically keeping so, and but also your prisoners awake, mm-hmm. uh, um, and that there is a way. I, you know, as you said, we don't want to get too much in the weeds uh, there, but I. So I'm going to just try before we before we move into other areas, though. I think it's important to to iterate and i'll try and do this concisely to iterate like what's the purpose of beginning with the these military experiments on on soldiers and on you know torture victims detainees right so what's the um what's the what's what's the takeaway that query uh i think there are two takeaway points that query wants us to get from this example, two big takeaways. The first takeaway is like the, I think we're supposed to think of the internet as I think as most of us know, um, I think this is kind of general knowledge. I don't know if everybody is um, meditating on this point, but I think it's general knowledge that most of our technologies, most of our technological advances happen as a result of military endeavors and the internet is a spectacular you know example of that where internet communications was tested out i believe in the pentagon but certainly in the defense department and then it, it's extrapolated in quote unquote non-military life so one of the things one of, i think one of the points one of the takeaways for you know one of the reasons why query begins with the the history of military conduct is because he wants you to think of the internet itself as a, he wants to remind you that the internet itself, before it was a business practice, it was something that was used to the military for very specific ends. And what's the specific end? What's the second takeaway here? The specific end is if you take away, if you manipulate a person's time, specifically, if you deprive them of their sleep, you can control them. 
You can make them do what you want them to do. You can set their agenda. You can create, and this is what we're going to see more specifically, uh, that Crary is arguing that the internet does, digital culture does. Once you break down your defenses, their defenses, you can recreate a new human. So I, I think it's important. I, I don't want to get too further details on that, but I think it is important to say, this is why he's giving us this example. I, he does. I want to just... Uh to to address something that we we may or may not get to but in in terms of the manipulation of time yeah. i think it's also worth noting though that in a capitalist sense mm -hmm. this is not something that needs to be viewed through a militaristic lens right oh, correct. if you look at the right. simple example uh of a casino right um there are no windows. There is in casinos. no time in so Las there, Vegas. And there's no windows or times. I used to yeah. work. I used to so a little personal information. I used to work in a bar that did this exact same thing. We had no windows and no clocks. And so what you do is you create a sort of the casino is the perfect example of this. But I had personal. I don't do casinos, but um, no windows, no clocks. You just create a ever present now. And in the sense of the casino, what happens is you develop this sort of nonstop hedonism. Like I want now, I want this now. And so you, you can literally, it, it's not the kind of thing where you have to have big brother sneaking in and manipulating your brain. We're complicit in this as well. All you got to do is give us that of little course. dopamine hit and then deprive of us, deprive us of a sense of time and we'll linger forever. So uh, I, I just want to say there's, you know, there's obviously the board uh, features heavily in this. Um, go back and listen to our discussion on Deleuze. You know, we are willingly complicit in sort of handing over control of ourselves. We don't, I don't know. I just, we, we, we become little well, you're, e you're, ego driven five-year-olds when it, when well, it comes down to well, this. You're, well, I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned your example. I'm going to mention another example that is not quite the same, but um, we can, along with our listeners, viewers, ponder it. You know, the other case where uh, the other moment where the sticks in my brain where a person took down the clocks there's a moment in uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, documentary on Bob Dylan, um, No Direction Home, mm -hmm. where uh, Scorsese uh, is talking to Bob Dylan's producer in 1965-66, uh, Bob Johnson, who's a Nashville producer, I think originally from Nashville. And he comes up to New York to record Bob stuff, the classic stuff in 65-66, the classic rock stuff. And uh, Bob Johnson is full of full of beans on Dylan, uh, and a very and you know it's kind of an old time Southern gentleman, and he and he you know and he speaks like a good old boy, and it's a hilarious moment where he says, "Yeah, you saw Bob. When I saw Bob, I knew the Holy Spirit was in him. So the first thing we did is we took down the clocks out of the studio. Uh, and, and but it is the same implication. It's like." Right now, we're dealing with, I mean, it's, I don't know it's what Crary is saying, but, it, but it's this idea that we're no longer on clock time. Mm -hmm. We're no longer on clock time. We're now in the time of eternity. We're off the clock. We're and that's, really off the clock. And, and that's yeah. the point, is if you take away any sense of the passage of time, you create exactly. eternity. 
And there's a lot of value in doing that. All right. So we've got casinos and Bob Dylan. Shall we? Casinos and Bob Dylan. (laughs) Maybe we should talk about Jonathan Crary. Let's jump in. Okay. So I'll I'll try and, uh, oops, oops. We had a technical problem here. Because the first thing I have to do is share. For those of you on YouTube, you're just having a great moment here. This is a wonderful moment. Okay, it's going to get a little bit smoother for everybody in our listening viewing audience. Starting now, um, we're going to take a whirlwind tour of a couple passages here. Or or I'm going to take a whirlwind tour of these passages, and Dr. Rapici is going to interrupt me, and we're going to comment on them. Okay, First one uh, is this, uh, this passage at the bottom of page three, top of page four. And I guess I'll read the sentence and I'll make a brief comment and see what Dr. Rapici has to say. 24-7 markets and a global infrastructure for continuous work and consumption. That's important, right? The work cycle and the consumption. This is one place where it intersects with Guy Debord because what Guy Debord adds to, I guess, suppose a Marxist theory of media is that the apparatuses that sell us objects that encourage us to consume, the primary spectacle in the society of spectacle that DeBoer is aware of is advertising. Television images, movie images, whatever newspaper images that advertise goods. And what's important, and, 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 and Crary follows suit, So every time he talks about the new configuration of work time, it's implicit that work time is somehow always already consumption time, right? That the feedback loop between working and buying is, has shrunk. Now that's not, that is different in terms of the immediate, in terms of the destruction of that boundary between work time and buying time, that's something that DeBoer wasn't aware of, right? Didn't have the internet. But the idea that the spectacle is concerned with making you buy things as well as keeping you working, that's something that DeBoer already factored in in his media theory and his social critique. All right, long gloss, back to Crary. 24-7 markets and a global infrastructure for continuous work and consumption. I was trying to gloss the and there uh, because it's important that work and consumption are conjoined. Have been in place for some time. But now, and this is, I think, Michael, I think this is the big takeaway. And I want to add the word new. But now a human subject, I want to add the word new. But now a new human subject is in the making to coincide with these structures of feeling more intensively. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that comes to mind with this is, is, and, and he talks about this later, but this is a perfect example again about how um, these technological advancements, right? This is, and he, this is this is a constant theme throughout the book that we herald as you know uh, freeing, or that we 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 herald as being positive things. Really, just extend the ability to consume and to work in ways Correct. which are really, quite frankly, insidious. I mean, if you think about email, 
originally pops to mind, right? The 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 ability to mm. interact from anywhere. What we've seen with that, and and I think COVID and, and the lockdowns really made this something that was incredibly visible and prevalent. Suddenly, is. And so in a way, I'm interrupting myself here, but space also becomes a part of this mm. issue, right? When you remove time, one of the other things we've also done is destroy the physical boundaries that delineate a workspace from a play space, from a consumption space, right? So, um, you know, you, you and I are of an age where if you wanted to buy something at one point in time, you actually had to leave to go to a place to buy it. If you wanted to work, you had to leave yeah. to go to a place. Now, all of that exists all right. the time in, in the permanent now. Well, you know, like, so, and, one of, and in no place, permanent now, no place. You're very right to interrupt yourself and say there's a spatial component to this temporal, new temporal. Well, component. and so we, we herald this as this wonderful freeing thing, you know? So I think of this, I, I work with a woman, well, she was recently retired, but who used to go hike the Camino every year. And she would take her phone with her and actually use the phone to, blog her way or to teach her way across the Camino. So as she's hiking this, she's simultaneously tethered to this device, which she is using for work purposes. Now we say that's a great thing because students get the live experience of what, the, but they don't get a live experience, right? No, they're getting, they're a, getting a digitized facsimile of something. <laughs> right, right. And at the same time, at the same time, she's not able to be fully present. And this harkens back to Stiegler in a way, but certainly it's on Curry's mind, this idea of space and time to think and to be apart, to be turned off, that simply doesn't exist, right? And so what's happened and what he's talking about here, I feel, is this, this technological evolution, which has disrupted our sense of time, disrupted our sense of place, disrupted our sense of order. And in doing that has crept in and really erased them all and made us, and th this I think is one of his points that we haven't spoken about, but I think is incredibly interesting because of my own personal background, this inversion of subject object. And, you know, we're, we're, we're walking around really um, with the idea that these tools are or these, these, excuse me, these technologies are tools which help enable things. And, and, and really what they're doing is they're just disrupting our sense of how things go and subjecting us to a different form of categorization and organization, which I problematic. I just, I, I, my, my, I lost the word there, but I ran out of beans, Mary. I ran out of beans. Well, uh, yeah, but you were definitely on some effing beans for a while there. That was all <laughs> gold. I love it. I love it. That's a wonderful comment. Let me, I'll continue because yep. I have nothing to add to that wonderful discussion thread, which I thought was wonderful. Um, okay, page eight. To add something to this formula about the creation of the new subject and the new spatial temporal configurations circumstances that are uh, in which the new subject inhabit, that the new subject inhabits. Page eight, due to these, due to one, <laughs> Barry can't read anymore. That's it's tricky, it's aging. tricky. Words it's are hard. problem with aging. Yeah, you know how it is. Uh, one of those conditions can be characterized. One of our conditions, current conditions can be characterized as a generalized inscription of human life into duration without breaks. A new subject could be a new temporality. I added that phrase, but let me pick up his phrase. 
a new temporality that is defined by a principle of continuous functioning. What is functioning? Okay, quick gloss on functioning here. It's it's what Crary has already mentioned and we've already mentioned. Functioning in this sense is pretty much exclusively limited to the functioning of either work time, your example of your colleague where work time and play time are collapsed into functioning, a greater functionality. That's exactly what uh, Crary is discussing here. And also the ability to, per now that's not true in your colleague story. What you have there is a is both work time and leisure time being collapsed into a larger notion of functioning. She is a higher, there's a higher productivity that subsumes the human subjects in these cases uh, that is annexed to capitalist functioning. Um, another way of thinking about functioning is that your time is either you're freed up and you're right. And you had already mentioned this, that there is an ambiguous connotation to functioning. Um, there, there's an, there's an ambiguous connotation of free time or being freed up in these particular cases, because what you're freed up to do is something that's very limited. You're either freed to a higher level of functioning that is divorced from your own experience, or you're freed up to buy stuff. That's that's what you're liberated into. You're liberated, you're emancipated so you can consume better or function at a higher level according to your bosses. Yeah, I, I think, but there's an interesting um, sort of duality to this that, mm -hmm. that comes as a result. So um, we are free to do more. And as you said, we're to, free to do more, which becomes consumption. So here's the interesting problem with this situation, right? Those, that, that, those, that time that we had, we turn to consumption. The problem is that what we produce is fodder for consumption. And so what happens is <laughs> right. that lived up. No, so there's a, there's here, I'll tell you part two of the story, right? Yeah, so please. she comes back from her trip and we have our, you know, faculty meeting and her trip has now been condensed into a PowerPoint, right? And so look what I did and here's the PowerPoint of it. Well, the problem is everybody has a PowerPoint of everything. And so what was in its moment, probably a very, very engaging, powerful, profound lived experience is now reduced to a PowerPoint among other PowerPoints. It's be, it, it, it has been homogenized. It has been devalued. It has been something that we click on. And the problem is that what she's doing, and I can't speak to this directly, but I've certainly been on the receiving end of other versions of things like this. The students for whom she was presenting this are hopping from a YouTube video about cats, playing keyboards, right? to this PowerPoint on the Camino, to another YouTube video about cats or people getting hit in the crotch with golf balls or whatever it is that you're watching, right? Like it just, it joins the sea of flotsam and jetsam of 
digital junk information. Well, if content junk, junk, thank you. Right. And so we all become content creators in our ability to produce, but God help us curators. Right. But that, I mean, so in a way, aren't we, aren't we contributing to this though right now? Oh, Um, but, but in a way that free time is really just freeing us up to complete the cycle and consume. And um, I think that's one of Crary's arguments here is that, you know, the, the, the consuming that we do, this certainly ties back to DeBoer, is, 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 is a poor proxy for the lived experience and, and the actual human interaction. Well, what we're doing in this uh, podcast is a dangerous game, right? Uh, because we're participating within the system, but we're, we're assuming, right, that something about that actually thinking amounts to a pause or an interruption in the system. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, 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 it's a risky game and we're probably losing, you know, from that point of view. But I mean, I think that's the gambit. The, the reason why we know this stuff and we still do podcasts is we feel that, I mean, I, I'm trying yeah. to justify what we do um, given what you just said, but I, you know, I think well, this it constitutes a pause, right? It constitutes a pause of activities. Thinking thinking is a stay on activity. And in that sense, it creates a new kind of time. It is. And it's also a part of the reason why a podcast such as this will uh, likely never see the traffic that a podcast on, um, you know, uh, celebrity footwear. Right. Right. Because it's, it's not um, because it it requires, it requires a certain level of interaction uh, in order to actually make sense of it. And that's, you know, so. Right. And who has time? No, right. Not everybody or not everybody will make time. You know, I'm teaching uh, an essay uh, in Plato's cave from Susan, by Susan Sontag from her book, 1977 book on photography. We might end up talking about that in, on this podcast if Michael approves. Um, but it relates to what you just said about the, the PowerPoint anecdote, because her thesis in Plato's cave is that the world exists to be photographed. That at a certain point, if you can't produce an image of something, and Instagram is total proof of this, mm-hmm. if you can't produce an image, oh, why are you having that meal finally? Why are you having that delicious meal? In a way, Instagram suggests the reason you're having that meal is that you need to share it with other people visually. You need to take That's a picture. That's interesting. Am I seducing you into talking about Sontag? I'm getting there. Because, I mean, isn't what you just said, isn't what you just said, that the world, that whole experience existed so that your colleague could produce a PowerPoint? God, that's so upsetting. Not necessarily, because I think I think even in this episode, but certainly in future episodes, I think for all the depressing, all the depressing things we're saying, I think that, I mean, and this is something I think we'll, we're challenging ourselves to do. I think there's always a possibility of doing otherwise, you know, of some, I, I mean, if not stopping the system, and certainly we can't escape the system, as you were saying, but I think there's always a possibility of, of doing otherwise. We'll, we'll talk more about that. So I, I, I'm trying not to get depressed by Crary or about Sontag, uh, but but I, do, I think. But on I, the other I, hand, I, let's name what you said. You named that ex, that 
you named the meaning of, I think you described the meaning, you've given us the significance of the anecdote that you gave. The significance of it, it all exists. It's all being instrumentalized to produce a PowerPoint. I mean, we shouldn't, whatever we say after that, we should at least acknowledge that. Fact. Yeah, I, well, you have to leave some sort of digital trace, right? That in, right. in order to, to prove that you were there. Um, and I think that's 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 the part. I, I I wonder, I don't know that now is necessarily the time for it, but I really wonder about the um, legitimacy of resisting uh, meaningfully. I, I'm not, I, I would have to give that more thought. Uh, I, I don't well, know. We, I, I think we will. Um, I think we will as we go further, because I think that question has, the question of resistance, maybe it comes up in DeBoer and, comes up anyway, you know, and more and more, I, I feel that we're, we're sort of just to, uh, uh, I don't know if this is insider baseball or just reference self-referentiality, but I think we were both uncomfortable with Byung-Chul Han's um, facility at describing the, the negative effects of digital culture. And, and the relative lack of time and purpose that he gives to imagining alternatives. I agree. And I also want to say that I think there's a sort of, in a way, there's a seductiveness to some of Crary's pessimism. Um, that we need to resist? That I do exactly. think we need to, uh, I, I don't know that he's fully wrong, but I think that he's not fully right either in terms of the just whitewashing of you know creativity and individuality that we may still have access to but <clears throat> god i have a throat you put that I, very well you put that very well um anyways sh sh I, I got a frog in my throat i apologize um shall we move to the next we one? shall move uh, and i i don't know how long we've been going but surely we've been going too long so i'm going to try and do these two <clears throat> do these two points quickly okay and, you know, and then maybe we'll move to our final thoughts. Um, so uh, this is just one more gloss on this idea of the new subject that Crary believes the 24-7 the, uh, the system is creating. Uh, it's a new kind of time and space that goes along with the construction of a new subject fit for consumption <laughs> and fit for work. Uh, in these new, in this new system, and th this passage suggests the human loss or the, the human cost of all this process. The very beginning. See if I can actually, for our YouTube people, see if I can actually color code this as an advertising exhortation. It decrees the absoluteness twenty four seven. Decrees assumes the absoluteness of availability. And hence, this is the, the human cost. Here, Crary suggests the human cost of all this. And hence, the ceaselessness of needs and their incitement, but also their perpetual non-fulfillment. So this new subject is, you know, you have to go back to Greek mythology to come up with similar figures, a similar human type or similar uh, metaphorical expressions of the human. Um, 
we are like Tantalus or Sisyphus. Uh, we're ceaselessly doing a task that we know is tied that will never be fulfilled, that we're ceaselessly tied to a hunger, in Tantalus's case, that can never be fulfilled. In Sisyphus, maybe Sisyphus is more the closer analog, where Sisyphus is permanently at work doing something that he is fated to know will never succeed. Yeah, I think so this that, becomes a new configuration of this new subject has this new exist in a damned state, in a state of damnation. They are damned to have needs, but that they can never fulfill. And that's the point. It is. I think that there's an interesting shift, though, and I'll use Sisyphus as the example, right? So Sisyphus pushes the boulder up the hill. And then let's go and it drops the bottom and he has to go get the boulder and push it up again. Right. That's coarsely Correct. retold, but that's the story. I think that what 24 seven has done is not drop the boulder down the hill. And this is that shift of subject object again, right? In Sisyphus's case, we can argue Sisyphus is the subject. The boulder is the object. He's pushing this up the hill. But I like this object subject. I'm obsessed with this theory. in a way, but, but. But here's, it's almost like I did work on this at some point. I was um, about to say. <clears throat> but Is I there think a the prior history, the, 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 I think where we are now is, you know, we're not, the problem is, and Query might argue that I'm reading this wrong, but we're not pushing the same boulder up the hill. What oh, we're doing, no. what we're doing is pushing a new builder or boulder, excuse me, up a never ending hill, right? And so or it's always a new boulder. Maybe yeah, that's yeah, because isn't it always the new thing? And and I yeah, think there's always a new thing thematically. Right. I, I think Crary and, and many others would argue that the boulder, even though it's packaged differently, is always the same stupid thing that we're chasing. Right. Uh, like, of course, of course. But but the difference is perpetual non-fulfillment. Right, right. But the difference is that we become the object in this. Right. We are the ones who are consider continually consuming um habitually it's it's not as right. if we're really choosing anything new because there's nothing new but it's just a, it's, it's it's always a different object running up the hill for those of you watching i apologize for the frantic finger pointing um so yeah that's 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 i i think that um i think that's it that's it that's it hold up hold that point though mm -hmm. because that goes directly into our my last contact point my last powerpoint Okay. I also exist to produce outlines and, and PowerPoints. I'm not above the fray. Um, what you just said directly relates to our last point of the discussion for today, uh, because there's a shift between, and we'll end with this, there's a shift between chapter one and chapter two. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is, I detect a shift. And I think the shift is actually where Crary is his most provocative, um, where he owns, get off my yard, you meddling kids, where he owns it. He doesn't just say it, he owns it. And he makes you tremulous. He makes you very afraid of getting on Mr. Crary's yard. So the first part of the chapter is a really masterful argument, I think, that in, something new is going on. I think very consciously, 
the new thing, he has DeBoer's, what well, would be for Crary, DeBoer's old thing in mind, the older society of the spectacle in mind. But nonetheless, the emphasis in chapter one is on how there's a new kind of humanity that is being created and constructed by technology. By technology, And he describes the new parameters of this emergent humanity, to use Raymond Williams' term, the emergent future of humanity, the new time and space that we've been talking about uh, that is accompanying and circumscribing the new human subject. So there's that. Chapter two is where he gets old man, young, young person, get off my effing yard. And he really owns it. And especially, I think he has in mind uh, usually younger scholars who might be taken with new media and thinking that new media is worth. Now, I'm going to state this in bald terms because I think if you don't state it in bald terms, in frank terms, it's not as interesting because it's not as provocative. So I'm going to state it like I said, pretty directly and maybe crudely, um, but, I, but I'm, I'm going to stick by it. What you get in chapter two is a provocation to all of us, but especially to those of us, I'm looking at you, Wendy Chime, not really, but. Um, but you are. Maybe, maybe some parts of Wendy. Um, to anyone who thinks that because digital media is new, because ChatGBT, that's totally effing new. Let's obsess about it. Let's talk about it all the effing time. And why? Because it's new and it's aesthetically interesting. Isn't it totally interesting how th this particular uh, new development, this new app, you know, the new possibilities, the dangerous possibilities that are only afforded by this new technology? Yes and yes and and Crary says, well, yes and no. Yes, there are new possibilities that are being afforded by the new technology, but is it mostly new dangers to the human that are being afforded to the new possibilities? If so, why are you excited about it? And by the way, let's 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 linger a moment on ChatGPT before I read the passage. Because this is this is kind of headline, you know. I'm trying to take in news headlines. I read yesterday about the excitement and also fear that ChatGPT um, is is uh, casting in the heart. Not you know, um, Michael is very aware, and I'm sure most of our audience is aware that for English teachers, you know, uh, January and February, um, you know, of this year, this calendar year. Uh, there, there seemed to be something about how chat GPT was going to cause uh, university teaching of English or of writing classes or composition classes, how it was going to throw everything off, you know, off the cliff and English professors would have to commit Hari Kiri or, or do something to accommodate the new technology. Fast forward to yesterday's uh, New York Times, where there was a story about white collar workers now I know you think I'm digressing and not getting to the door, Michael, but I am because um, there's a particular thought strand in the passage I want to go to, and it's directly relevant to the story I saw. So in that story, it was about, well, not English professors, but about white collar executives who were both afraid and attracted 
to the new ways that ChatGPT could, for example, do coding, write coding, write, take over some of the labor of their particular professions. What struck me in this is that, wow, okay, so there is new media. And I think this is exactly what Crary is talking about from his vantage point of over, he's anticipating these kind of moments and our desire to say, well, something new and exciting, a whole game, ChatGPT as a whole changes the game. Um, he's bored ahead of time. Uh, Crary, Crary really wants us to you know, get less excited about the mere novelty of new media. So I'll, I'll cut to the chase. One thing, one of my takeaways from the New York Times article was, wow, hmm, it's not everybody who is enthralled by or uh, enthralled by the dangers and possibilities of chat GPT is at New York Times. We're talking about white collar executives. That's not the mainstream of the population. Now, directly, I will, I will shut my mouth, but only after I go directly to the screen share and read this bit of color that I, of query that I think is very prescient. Query just comes up and, and makes the old man statement. I don't care about your new technologies. I'm thinking about the system. I'm thinking about the new 24 seven. I'm thinking about whether your chat GPT or your new apparatus, is it disturbing or is it smoothing the functioning? of the new 24 seven cycle of work and consumption that I've been talking about in my book. If it's enhancing it, get away from me with your fetish for new technology and your claim the new media is really new. Get away from me. Quote, for the vast majority of people, our perceptual and cognitive relationship to communication and infor information technology. He's writing, I'm, I don't know if I'm getting the exact right day, but at the beginning, it's over 10 years ago. He predicts for the vast majority of people, our perceptual and cognitive relationship to communication and information technology, that our new devices will continue to be estranged and disempowered because of the velocity at which new products emerge. And boy, have we seen this with ChatGPT. There have been three variations in four months that I know of. There probably have been more at which new products emerge and in which arbitrary, and that's another, to me, the layman, this layperson here, these things are arbitrary. It's an arbitrary reconfiguration of entire systems take place. Don't look at the, the small picture. Don't obsess about the details. Look at the bigger picture. Has that changed? No, it hasn't. So I have a very interesting question for you about this. Uh, um, so when you, you were hundred percent right, December, January were very interesting times to be on a college campus, right? Especially in an English department, because by God, <clears throat> you would have thought the world was ending. All right. And I read, I too read something recently <laughs> about chat GPT. <laughs> I too did. And um, I can't put my finger on what it was, unfortunately, but the basic argument in it was that college age students now see these technologies very differently than we do. And that what you and I 
think of as wildly disruptive, new. It's just another. It's, it's another just another thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wonder if what I'm going to so articulately call the thinginess of these new technologies, the thingness of, of the new thing, is that a does that speak in your mind to a certain cynicism? Maybe just an ingrained cynicism, not even a conscious cynicism. Yeah, not not a conscious. Just right. an ingrained cynicism towards technologies, and I want to distinguish between technologies and the products of technologies. We are enraptured with the products. Products of technology, right? right. We want New devices. We, we are want. Enraptured, we yeah. want to consume, right? right. But what you consume is the product of a technology. It is not the technology itself. And I wonder if because of the massive and 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 how do I want to say this? The massive and the continuous, the, the 24-7 evolution of everything, if we've just developed a certain cynicism about this, like whatever. But I, I like still, what you did. I like what you did, though, and I just want to interrupt to say this. I like what you did earlier when you when you tag cynicism, which is the right word, but I think you have to tag it like you did. It's not a reflect. Cynicism is usually a conscious. Attitude. It's not. This it's is not. not. It's this a is not state. I think that it Thank is you. a sort of technologically imposed yeah, state, yeah, yeah. and this might speak to Crary and DeBoer's argument about. Uh, the difficulty that we have communicating, the mm. difficulty that we have producing genuine human experience through, does, through yeah. these mediated channels. You I know, mean, to me, one of my favorite moments in this book uh, that you did not get to, but <sighs> uh, I will Look read just briefly here. Sure, please. Um, is It ends chapter two. And mm -hmm. he says, we buy products that have been recommended to us through the monitoring of our electronic lives. And then we voluntarily leave feedback for others about what we've purchased. Mm -hmm. We are the compliant subject who submits to all manner of biometric and surveillance intrusion and who ingests toxic food and water and lives near nuclear reactors without complaint. The oh absolute abdication of responsibility for living is indicated by the titles of the many best-selling guides that tell us with a grim fatality, the thousand movies to see before we die, the hundred tourist <laughs> destinations to visit before we die, and the 500 books before to read before we die, period, end of chapter two. I mean, it is like- Mike dropped, you know, <laughs> but he owns his old madness. Like I was saying, he is unstoppable. I mean, that is savagely cynical, right? Like you- I, I don't think it's cynical at all. I think it's realistic. But does there need to be a difference? Oh, you mean you mean the human? What are you calling cynical? I don't think he's being cynical. No, I think the fact that that is the oh, that reality. Cynical. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. I just I I wonder if yeah. You know, I'm I, I, again. I think it's a seductive argument to say the sky is not only falling; it is crushing crushing us, and there is nothing you can do. 
uh, read these books about the places you should see and go and <laughs> ingest the tourist guide. And you were a part of it. Take a picture, post it somewhere, and you've gotten the experience. I think it's 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 seductive to say that we have been sterilized to that point. I don't fully believe I'm not ready to jump on that wagon. Well, but but you know, I don't read. I think we should um I'm going to give you my takeaway because I think we've been going for a we're while. We're there. We're there. Um I'm going to give you my takeaway and it's going to be in response to the chat GPT thing. But let me say one thing about what you just said. What you just said was really an important discussion thread. I wish we had another podcast. Maybe we're going to do another podcast. If we do another podcast on this topic, then we can return to this explicitly. But uh, but I'll just keep it brief now. I do think that Crary holds out some... I feel that Crary is describing in that moment, and it's he's powerfully describing, but he's not saying that it's down to this. He worries that it might be, but I think he ha holds forth some hope. But to explain further than that, I don't think I have time and we have time to do it. But um, but but I as a description, I think we, we're both agreed as a description of the state of mind of the moment of his moment and ours. It's, it's pretty it's pretty spot on. OK, now let me give you my quick takeaway and that and I'm done for um, I've, I've worked too hard, Michael. You this have. This is why I've been working too hard. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take a vacation, but I can't take a vacation. Is our point? Um, nope. Unless you pictures and post and just <laughs> take us with you. <laughs> unless I exist, you know. Unless I can turn my relaxation into FaceTime, right? Um, into internet time. I wanted to say two things about the the. No, I, this is a response specifically to your response to the Chat GPT stuff. You are noticing and you are characterizing. Uh, this is part of the cynical slash realistic response that you were noting that young people have to the technological developments. And I, and I wanted to end by saying two briefly, two brief things about that and how Crary might come down in this debate. So number one, I think the fact that younger persons who are acclimated to internet culture, that they don't, they're not activated or energized or worried or whatever uh, by new capacities or new enhancements in the app. New enhancements in the app cause business executives and our thought leaders like um, the New York Times and media commentators um, causes all manner and, and administration, university administrators, all these people get in a tizzy with changes in, in the app or can be, you know, thrown off and incited to discourse by developments in the app. I think Crary would feel that young people have it about right in that they, they, they don't think that enhancements in the app get in the way of what they're already doing. And insofar as they, they accept that, I think he would say young people have a right and an older generation, the professional generation has it wrong in the sense that older people are more inclined to say, we're in a new era right now because there's chat GPT. We're about to enter, make a breakthrough. So I think he would like that aspect of a younger perspective, that part of a younger person's point of view. My final point, the, the thing that he might not like 
is that as I perceive it, younger people aren't questioning necessarily. Or you can say, well, chat GPT isn't necessarily going to affect my business, business as usual. So I'm not that concerned with it. Query would want younger people and older people and every person to be concerned with business as usual. So that part of it, you wouldn't like. Yeah, and I, that I think is what you're calling cynical. And no, he wouldn't like it. No, I think you're right. I think that, so here, I'll, I'll wrap up my end of this then. I think that if we're going to identify this shift between younger people who don't react as um, severely as, as, you know, old cranky people like you and I might, um, I think it's because they, we, we still have this connection or this rootedness in, in yeah. an analog world, right? Absolutely. I think part of Crary's problem is that, Absolutely. I think part of his argument about the problem is that as we compress time and space into a never ending present, it becomes harder to see the problem as a problem, right? Because the, it's, 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 we're just stuck in now. And, you know, I, I had said earlier that I think that his, what, what seems to be his sort of fatalistic approach to this about resistance. I think the, the problem, the, the, the difficulty that we have with resistance, and this is something that Stiegler gets to a lot, right? With his whole idea of noesis is that we have to unplug. And the difficulty in unplugging is that life exists when you're plugged in. The experiences are all digitized. And so to step outside that is also to cost yourself something. And it's weird because we talk about this cheapened version of interaction when it's mediated, but the other side of that coin is that it exists as a surplus. Wow, wow, wow. wow. You know, you just reminded me of, of something really perceptive that a friend of mine said. Um, I, back to you almost use his exact words. So I'm, I'm kind of startled by this, but you know, here's how one of my, uh, here, here's how a friend described the experience, what he thought the experience of undergraduate students are, is that he said, they come to my class and I'm asking them to spend an hour away from the things that really matter. Mm -hmm. The things that really matter. I'm asking them to spend an hour away from their phones. The problem with that is I'm asking them to be on my time. And if I'm saying, ditch your digital devices, I'm saying nothing less to them than put your whole life out of the picture for yeah. an hour. And, and we that, are asking that. But well, and but we seldom at, we seldom realize what we're asking. We're asking them to put their life on hold. Well, the trick I think is to create this connection, and we really probably should wrap up because we've been going for a while. We've but been going for the, ninety the, minutes. The trick, the trick wow. is to create a line of sight where we can say what we offer needs to be a part of that life, and that that I think is the great trick of modern education you know, is not so much to try and overcome the phone because you're not going to, it's to try and create a relationship where your students can see that what you're offering is compatible and may in some way enhance the lived experience that exists for them through that phone. Golden words from Dr. Rapici. I have nothing to add. Barry, this was fun today. I appreciate it.
Me too. Me too. I thought it was, uh, you know, Prairie, like I said, full of beans. We were both full of beans. <laughs> I, still, I still don't fully think I understand what that is, but <laughs> I appreciate all the same. Uh, Bear, have a great day and we'll, uh, too, we'll pick sir. this up next time. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.